Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast. And we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. So this is just cosmic mm-hmm. timing for us. We don't usually have good timing on this show, but you know we're coming off our John Mayer curveball right. in our previous episode. And you saw Dead & Co. at Wrigley Field in the time between our recording of the Mayer episode and now we're talking about Dick's Picks 33. So it's a very nice segue yeah. into this episode, talking about Dead & Co. And of course, we, we did a Dead & Co. episode Last fall, because you and I saw them in September at Wrigley. Yeah. You were flying solo at this show. I didn't get to go. I was at a family cabin. So you went. We were texting during the show. Yeah. Uh, I was annoying you because I kept texting about Goose. Right, you were giving me the Goose updates. I was giving you the Dead and (laughs) Company updates. Even though you weren't at Goose, you were just uh, following the internet. Yeah. Following the internet, but I was like, oh, Goose is with Father John Misty. Goose is with, with Trey. Right. And, and, and at one point, you're just like, just let me enjoy the beam right now. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I was texting you about Goose during the beam section <laughs> of the Dead & Co. show, which is a party foul on my on my part. But yeah, so I, I looked at the set list for, the, for your show. I mean, I liked the set list. I thought it was cool. Yeah. Like, but what did you think of the show? Right, yeah. So it was the perfect way, you're right, to, uh, I guess, uh, commemorate the week of isolation listening to John Mayer. That I went through for this show. Um, I wasn't going to go again, but I kind of got talked into it by a buddy. Because uh, I felt like, you know, we had a good time last year. We're on the record as I've ha- oh, yeah. having a good time with it last year. But I didn't really feel that much urgency to go see them again. But I did. It was a beautiful Chicago June night. And uh, I have to say, and I'm not just saying this to rub it in since you weren't there, but I do think this show was better than the shows we saw last year. Uh, but then I sit back and I wonder, was it objectively better? 
Or do you, did I just like assimilate to, uh, or acclimate to the vibes that Dead & Company put out? Like, I feel like the more you see Dead & Company, the more you get used to what it is and what it isn't. And I think people just have a better time <laughs> once they accept that. There's like uh, stages of acceptance that you go through with the dead. And you were just immersed in mayor too. Like you were just marinating in mayor well, before the show. I honestly think it helped. Like I wanted to be, you know, grumpy about it, but I felt like I had a better handle on what he was doing after listening to so much John Mayer the week before. And I started to think that maybe he does have his fingerprints on this band more than I had previously given him credit for, even in the last episode. Um, I mean, there's certain dead songs that just fit him perfectly. Like, I think one of the texts I sent you was that he was loving New Speedway Boogie. Oh, yeah. Which, like, you know, could have been on the live album we covered last episode. Like, it just, you know, it had exactly the sort of, like, slow blues groove that he's going to be all over. Right? But he also, like, the wheel went into sort of, like, a light reggae (laughs) jam, which... I think it sounds worse on paper than it was. It was pretty enjoyable live, uh, but it sounded a little bit uh, stingish, I would say. And, you know, we were doing a lot of comparisons to 80s Sting on that last record. Uh, you know, I mean, there was just, like, there's, they played Help Slip Frank. I think Help on the Way is one of the songs that he is best suited for, because Help on the yeah. Way has that sort of, like, soft rock vibe to it already. And like Franklin's Tower too is in that exactly. zone. I would yeah. say. I think he also sings that. I'm blanking now. Yeah, he sings that, and uh, O'Teal sings Fire because they also did Scarlet Fire, uh, but spread out over the entire show. Well, yeah, we, we got a uh, we got a tweet sent out to us from from Dominic. I'll just say his first name, and he asked like, "Okay, 36 from the ball tonight." Dead and Co started with Scarlet Begonias, and didn't play Fire until near the end of the second set, does this mean that the whole show counts as one big Scarlet Fire? And if so, is it the longest Scarlet Fire ever? So <laughs> you were there. Right. Do you, do you feel like everything was sort of contained within the Scarlet Fire, or like most of the show was contained within the Scarlet Fire? Yeah, I thought about that. Because we have a set break in there, too. I know, so yeah. It's the funny set break complicates it. The night before, they did the Dark Star trick where they play the first verse in the first set and then they played the second verse like halfway through the second set oh uh giving you the feeling that it was all dark star scarlet fire though i don't like and you know when they do play in and they do the reprise then everything in between counts as play in but i don't want to count it as a a complete scarlet fire because it wasn't continuous not just a set break, but not everything was segued between all of those, right? So I like the idea of like the set break being inside the Scarlet yeah. Fire. So like <laughs> you going to get a hot dog right. is part of the Scarlet Fire. So like really the whole audience, you're joining in on the jam. Like <laughs> and the set break is the most free form part of the jam. Right. You know, because there's literally no music. It's just people talking and buying beer and like whizzing. And, you know, yeah, like buying a hot dog or something. It's the most avant-garde part of it, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. This is like sea stones (laughs) taken to the nth degree. Um, Yeah, you know, it's interesting. uh, You you were talking about how being immersed in Mare maybe mentally prepared you for this Dead & Co. experience more. 
I was going to ask, like, okay, so the backlash, I feel like we had a backlash to our mayor episode. Yeah. Not as to bad some as degree. I thought, maybe, but yeah, it was there. Like, do you think it was worse than the fish backlash? Because <laughs> those were the two most sort of, like, divisive curveballs. We did Dylan and we did Radiohead. Those were both copacetic for the most part with right. our listeners. Yeah. I thought Radiohead would actually be more divisive, but people were on board with Radiohead. But uh, Fish and Mayor were the backlash ones. Do you think Fish was worse than Mayor for our listeners? Yeah, I think maybe in part because it was earlier in our run and people didn't really know what we were doing yet. Uh, so they were all of a sudden thinking that we were trying to sneak a fish podcast inside a, uh, like a Trojan horse that inside a Grateful Dead podcast. <laughs> Whereas, uh, right. yeah, this one, I mean, we'd already done a Dead Company episode. I mean, it, it, it all the like usual knocks on Dead and Company and Mayor just moved over to our feed for a couple of days and then departed again. I don't think we changed anybody's mind. No. Uh, we forced some people to listen to John Mayer, uh, just as Steve forced me to listen to John Mayer. And, you know, I think a lot of people came away from it with the same sort of impression that I did. Like, you know, a healthy respect for what he's doing, and I don't really need to listen to this again. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, this, like, and again, I don't know if this is personal experience or, like, an objective change, but it felt much less incongruous seeing John Mayer up there this time at my third Dead & Co. show. It just blended really nicely, and they communicated really well, I thought, as a band. I also uh, saw one of the shows that Billy had to sit out because of his pulled muscle. Uh, so we had a, a member of the Dead & Co. B team, Jay Lane, stepping in on drums. And I think, honestly, that helped, too. Jay Lane is not young, but he's younger than Billy, and no disrespect to Bill, who I love, uh... I think it was a little bit peppier than it normally would have been. Oh. So, whereas when we saw them, we remarked on the Jeff Comenti John Mayer coupling over on the side and how they're smiling at each other and playing yeah, off each other. Rock energy. Yeah. So Jay Lane is over on that side too. So you had this little like love triangle between the three of them. Oh man! That all was the, all the kids. That was the engine. Uh, and you know, Bob and Mickey just had to had to hold on. So yeah, it, it scooted a little harder than I think it did last year. Certainly not. You know, up to old classic Grateful Dead standards, but uh, it uh, it went pretty well. I thought it was a, it was a good show, and it was jammy, and I, I had everything I wanted. I wonder if at some point they're gonna have, because uh, you, know, you mentioned the B team, right, for Dead and Co. If they're gonna have uh, subs that that tour with them, just in case one of the older fellas breaks a hip or yeah. pulls well, a muscle, that is the case that happened here because Bill had to leave a show halfway through in St. Louis uh, earlier this week, and Jay popped in for the second set. So he is there on call in case one of the drummers can't do it. You just, like, break glass, <laughs> yeah. and then Jay Lane comes out. Like, in case of emergency. Like the emergency. Yeah. yeah so, so do they have, like, a like an understudy for Bob and Mickey then? You I know, don't just know. In case, do they keep them, like, in a, like one of the... One of the cases, like one of the band cases, <laughs> and you you just have to revive them. Like they just pop up. Uh, like if Bob, yeah, like pulls a hamstring or something. <laughs> right, be interesting exactly. to know because that is a big operation, big yeah. money operation. Yeah, you don't want to be canceling shows, and uh, I hope I hope Billy's on the mend. He seems to be. Uh, he had some trouble last tour as well, I think. So uh, it's a little troubling well, the- that he 
can't keep up, but uh, and I'm, I'm sorry. He's in his seventies, man. Like playing like a like a three hour stadium show in your seventies. Yeah, not easy. You know, at I, some point, he's just gonna want to snorkel in uh, Hawaii yeah, or you know, go scuba diving. Yeah, he's, he's like a scuba diver, right? Like him and Jerry used to I go. I think so. I think that's how we ended scuba up diving. There. He came out on Friday and played drums with Mickey and Jay Lane and O'Teal. Uh, but conspicuously did not come out on Saturday, so <laughs> I'm a little worried. I haven't heard any updates. Uh, so hopefully hopefully Bill's doing okay. Probably uh, had too much deep dish pizza in <laughs> Chicago. That can happen. That can happen. Got overconfident. Yeah. Well, should we get to Dick's Picks 33? Let's do it. Welcome to 36 from the Vault. My name is Steve. Yeah, my name is Rob, and we're going from one sports stadium to another today. Yeah, we're, we're it's Dick's Picks 33, October 9th and 10th, 1976, at the Oakland Coliseum Stadium. It says Coliseum Stadium on the album. Right. Which I don't think, isn't it, wasn't it at this time Oakland Alameda uh, Coliseum? I don't think stadium was in the, the actual, because that's a little redundant right to well, say it, coliseum stadium and it gets so confusing because there's the oakland coliseum arena right uh which the dead played at way more often so um it's like i almost like it makes you uh feel a little better about the days of corporate sponsorships because at least like, <laughs> there were some some uh proper nouns to tell them apart well the, i mean this this place is now known as ring central coliseum right. i don't know what ring central is mm-hmm. Uh, it was known as Overstock.com Coliseum. <laughs> yeah, it was like the OCO or something like that like, for yeah. a while, yeah. I kind of like Overstock Coliseum yeah. as a name. I like that. Get get the .com out of there, but <laughs> yeah, over, like Overstock. Anyway, we're in Oakland, the Dead's Backyard, right. the Bay Area. Um, we're also in the final stretch. Yeah, the final of, four. Of our show here. Final four ep- episodes, final four Dick's Picks. Um, I want to take your pulse for a minute. How are you feeling at this point? You know, we're getting near the end. Yeah. We've gone through a lot of dicks picks. Uh, I don't want to be a spoiler here, but I think we're on the same wavelength that like we weren't in love with this show or these right. shows, this, this, this dicks picks. Yeah. And I don't know if that, if that's fatigue with the, with the dicks picks series or if these shows actually, they're good, but they're not super exciting. I, I, I'm not sure where the line is with those those two possibilities. Yeah, I think it was a little troubling. Normally, <clears throat> you know, the curveball is sort of our all-star break in the middle of the season where we get to listen to something else. Uh, usually I'm all refreshed and ready to go back into the dead, but I, a little troubling that I was kind of underwhelmed by this volume. I think we both were. 
Uh, I don't know. I mean, the shows, we're going to get into this. I feel like the shows are just kind of okay. Okay to pretty good. Um, but the context yeah. around these shows is fascinating. So fortunately, we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> but it, yeah. just might, it might not be exactly what uh, people are used to tuning in for, I guess, <laughs> as far as yeah. song-by-song dead analysis. This is going to be uh, a covert curveball of sorts uh, on The Who. Right. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot about The Who in this episode, along with The Dead, because these shows, it was part of the Day on the Green series that took place for years in Oakland, organized by Bill Graham at this particular show. These sh- two shows were, uh, it was The Dead opening for The Who. Right. Um and there's a lot of interesting overlap between the dead and the who, some of which I knew, some of which I didn't know. Um, I have to say, though, like, to get back to the fatigue issue, right? I'm going to revive a complaint that many will find sacrilegious, but I stand <laughs> behind it, yeah. that there's too much 70s in the Dick's Pick series. That is my big complaint. Mm-hmm. I could have really used a Brent show here. Or I could have used a 60s show. One or the other. I just feel like in in this season, it's especially egregious. I mean, in Dick's Picks 32, we were in the 80s. And I think we both liked that album. I know I really like that record. Um, I love the 70s dead. I mean, you can't argue against 70s dead, but I just feel like um, we're getting a lot of the same songs. And... We're getting similar vibes. I mean, certainly in the 70s, there are distinct qualities to each year, right? which we've talked about on the show. But I don't know. I This, to me, like, I wish this was a 69 show or like a 1985 show. I think I would have been excited about it more than I was for going to 1976. Yeah. And I had built up a little bit of expectations for what I thought 76 Dead was going to sound like based on the last 76 Dick's Picks. Dick's Picks 20, I want to say. Yes. Um, And this didn't really fulfill that. So maybe I did, you know, shot myself in the foot with this. But um, yeah, it feels a little too close to, you know, the big 77 block we had recently. And I know we have another 77 next. So we're kind of like, not just in the 70s, but we're in post hiatus, uh, you know, 76, 77, like, holding pattern right now um yeah there, there's so many years in dead history we're kind of going over the same four or five years yeah and they're great years but i could go for a little more variety so that's i think my issue here i wonder um, too if um you know it's they didn't need to stop the dicks picks at 36 they could have kept dicks picks going forever right because obviously it went for many many volumes after dick himself died and they had established a brand. Uh, but after 36, they stopped. And they moved over to Road Trips and then eventually Dave's Picks. Uh, so maybe they were also feeling a little boxed in at this point. I always, I, It would be great to have Dave Lemieux back in and hear why they decided to end, retire the Dick's Picks brand and do something new. Because maybe he himself was feeling like they were running over the same turf over and over again at this point. I think they knew that one day there'd be a podcast about this series and that, <laughs> like, 40 from the vault, it's not as good of a title. Right. <laughs> but 36, it's like, oh, that sounds like a good podcast title. That rolls so we'll right off the that. tongue. Yeah. Rolls right off. So we're going to talk about 
not just the dead, but we're going to talk about this as an event, the day on the green. Right. At the end of 1976, or I think it was the last day on the green concert of 1976. Uh, but before we do that, let's get to our mailbag segment. Thank you all for writing in and reaching out to us. And it's always great to hear from you. If you want to hit us up, we're at 36 ftv at gmail.com. Uh, Rob, you want to read this first letter? Sure. So we got uh, Dan in Vancouver. Back to the international 36 from the vault community. Yes. Dan writes, first time, long time. There have been four we bid you good night so far. And as far as my memory goes, you guys have basically completely glossed over it every single time. Oh, what, shit. What is your issue with we bid you good night? Some of us are WBYGN stands. All caps. All caps. That's all caps. Give it the respect it deserves. <laughs> you guys are fans for the PH, after all. And the vocal jam, parentheses, UG, likely doesn't exist without WBYGN. But unlike the vocal jam, WBYGN is actually awesome. Oh. Wake, wake up, boys. Dan. Shots fired by Dan. All right, Dan coming in hot. I like Catching it. multiple strays there. He's taking <laughs> shots at us, taking shots at Fish. I'm going to say I like the vocal jam yeah. from Fish. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, so I'm going to take a shot back. Um, <laughs> I don't know if he's right or not. If we've never talked about it, but it, I guess I'll take him at his word that we have glossed over it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, I guess if we've never talked about it, that's like something like we should have talked about it by now. I feel like we did talk about it once, though, didn't we? I have a well, I think we did. I have a theory, and my theory is that We Bid You Good Night is traditionally at the end of a dead show, at the end of a Dick's Picks volume. Um, you know, we're just like Billy Kreutzmann. We're humans. We're doing, you know, two hours of talking about the dead. Usually by the time we get to that, we're kind of uh, out of things to say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're winding down the episode. Right. And we're like, uh, okay, yeah. And then they did, and we bid you good night. And uh, yeah, let's move on. So, uh, but I mean, I like it, of course. I think it's beautiful. Uh, there, there, there really isn't that much to say about it. I think, in general, like uh, it's it's a it's a it's a beautiful benediction to a dead show. I love it when they do it after an especially noisy jam. Uh, the Dick's Picks Four one comes to mind, like that that is just emerging from this like wall of noise feedback jam. Uh, and I love when uh, Jerry puts it into going down the road feeling bad. Like the uh, And We Bid You Good Night sort of instrumental jam is always great. Uh, so I, I have nothing but love for We Bid You Good Night. It's just, uh, as, as I think we're finding 33 volumes into this project, there's certain songs that you can't come up with 30 different takes on. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I think that the end of the episode theory is absolutely correct. If they opened with it, yeah, we would be talking about it a lot more. I think once you get to the end of the show, um, you know we're we're eyeing the exits here. We're, we want to get to the car, beat traffic. <laughs> so you know, in a, in like a metaphorical sense or a figurative sense. But no disrespect to "We Bid You Good Night." I'm I'm with Rob. I think it's a beautiful song, and we have now talked about it longer than we have in any other episode. So. Right. Thank you for your service, Dan. You got We Bid You Good Night into our show. Um, I'll read our second letter. This comes from a guy named Josh. Josh should not say where he lives. Josh, please. 
<laughs> we wish you knew. Actually, I think he's in Colorado because he he references a show in Boulder here. So you're maybe you live in Boulder, but at any rate, it says hey, Robin Steven, first time, long time. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I wanted to praise you for your thoughtful and evol- an evolving approach to Dead and Company over the years. And he hasn't even heard this episode yet. Um, I've heard so many incredibly boring, jaded ding-dongs casually write off the band for any number of reasons, and it's great to hear you two grow to embrace the newest chapter of the dead with such egoless enthusiasm. Well, I I have a huge ego, so (laughs) that's not, it's not egoless, but I appreciate you saying that. Uh, With the podcast's main objective reaching its natural endpoint, I think more DNC coverage would fill a pretty glaring gap in the contemporary discourse. Fish enjoys plenty of show-by-show coverage, and now even Goose has, deservedly, at least two podcasts keeping abreast of their activities. Um, Your Wrigley 2019 episode, actually it was 2021, uh, and recent John Mayer deep dive is a refreshing dose of modern-day dead journalism. Uh, It's not journalism, but yeah, thank you again. (laughs) You're very nice. And it serves the community well. DNC's weekend in Boulder, this tour was absolutely stunning, and I think you'd find a lot to dig your teeth into for an update on the live dead experience in 2022. Uh, thank you so much for a fun show. And again, that comes from Josh. So Josh, who may be Josh Mayer for all we know. <laughs> I know. Was that a reference? Yeah, it could be Josh Mayer. Yeah. Um, he's asking if we would ever do a show-by-show breakdown of dead and company um josh it's such a nice letter i appreciate all the nice things you said um i cannot do a dead and co (laughs) show i i I don't think i would survive that yeah i I mean like you know like a show by show breakdown of dead and company i mean i would not even for you know my personal enjoyment probably listen to an entire tour of Dead and Company, or more than a couple shows here and there. I don't know. I've, I've, I've. Li- there are tours of Dead and Co that I've listened to. Like not every show. I wouldn't listen to any every show by any band. I mean, mm-hmm. I know you're doing that with Fish, right? A lot of people do that with the Dead. I, I usually tap out after about eight or nine shows. Like, mm-hmm. I, it's like I got to hear something different. You know, like that's right. a lot of one band. Yeah. To listen to. Um, but yeah, Dead & Co., again, no disrespect. We have, I think, been respectful to Dead & Co. on yeah. this show. But uh, It's like no, Josh is a... trying to trick me into walking back some of the nice things <laughs> I said about that. Um, I mean, it's like... <sighs> I mean, someone should do that, because I think that yeah. there would be people that would want to hear it, but I, that that is not in my skill set to listen to every single Dead & Co. show and talk right. about it. I mean, there's every, every show that I've seen them play, including the other night, has like two jams that I would like to hear again multiple times. So it's very much like a highlight sort of thing. Like you can pick and choose sort of the the big Den Company moments that you need to keep keep up on. Like I would encourage everybody to give a cha- give uh, the Slipknot a try from the second night of Wrigley. Slipknot was very good. Give the Dancing in the Street a try. Um, but yeah, entire shows. I mean, it's much more about the vibe. I think of being there and being surrounded by people. And it loses a lot, maybe, in translation to just sitting at home listening to the tape in that case. But that's just us. Josh, maybe you should do that show. Yeah, I exactly. Think you man's you are coming. Yeah, you are coming from the right place. That, And I'm sure there would be, be, be people that would listen to it. 
Uh, but we have to proceed with our show now. Let's dig into the context of Dick's Picks 33. This album came out November 15th, 2004, um, around the time that George W. Bush was elected a second time in America. Yeah. You know, just dark, a great period. Dark time. You, listen, you need a Dick's Picks <laughs> to clear your head from, from that mess. Um, this is a four-banger. God, we're getting a lot of multi-bangers yeah. this, this, this season, man. They're laying it on us big time. I, I thought it was interesting that the other Dick's Picks from 76, Dick's Picks 20, is also a four-banger that covers two shows. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they're complete shows, but they're more or less, you know, you're getting most of what was on those shows. Uh, and those shows were only from two weeks prior yeah. to these shows. I was like September 25th and 28th. But it is interesting. I, I feel like those shows are different. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was getting at earlier is those shows really felt like uh, they were still shaking off post-hiatus cobwebs. Of course, they came back much earlier in the year, but... I liked kind of how raw it was, how they were kind of regaining their footing, how they were playing around with set lists in some interesting ways. Uh, they hadn't quite settled into what they were doing in 77 yet, where it got a little more samey. Uh, so I was like, all right, another 76. I had circled this one uh, before the season started uh, as one that I was excited for. Uh, but it kind of ended up sounding a little bit more like... Uh, 77 light <laughs> than uh, like the weirdness of 76 I was hoping for. Um, I will say, you know, for this release, it aesthetically fits. I don't think we've had a Dix Picks where every set just fits on a disc. I do want to hand it, give it some credit for that. Like each disc is one set and you get the entire set. They didn't have to cut anything out. Everything fit very nicely on 75 minutes of CD. So uh, credit to the dead for anticipating the CD era so nicely with these shows. And then you get the cover of the album, again, from the screensaver era. Right. Just atrocious. These are terrible covers at the end. And it's green. Yeah. Just like Day on the Green. Day on the Green. So that's a, which they could have just put a picture from the show on the cover. <laughs> that would have been kind of right. cool instead of this garish screensaver. Um, and there were some cool pictures from this show, too, I found online. Oh, so lots of good totally. material they could have used. But uh, the other thing uh, that I found funny, you know, they always the Dick's Picks always have these warnings, somewhat tongue-in-cheek sometimes for the, uh, for the listener that it's not a perfect recording. But uh, this one says, This space is usually reserved to warn you of sound quality anomalies on these two-track recordings. Disregard that for this Dick's Pick. There aren't any. It sounds great. Enjoy. Ah, see, and it's a Betty board. It's a Betty. So, yeah, it it definitely sounds great. Yeah. Um, yeah, A a big improvement over Dick's Picks uh, 32, which, again, like those (laughs) early 80s shows just are a little janky. And and if I remember, like, that was just taken from a cassette, too. Yeah, yeah. Dick's Picks 32. This one is good old reel-to-reel Betty board master. So, uh, interesting, though, they recorded, so because they were playing with The Who, they used The Who's PA system. For this show, of course, the wall of sound had already been retired, but the dead aren't on their normal speakers here. So I thought it was interesting that it didn't sound any different at all. <laughs> like you would think that would have made some difference, and maybe it does in like an audience recording uh, more than a board. Mm. But uh, it sounds pretty typical, typical dead. So yeah, you don't have like a really. I guess it. You know, we'll get into it, but there's a lot of characteristics that the Who and the Dead share musically. Uh, that maybe the sound system wouldn't make that much of a difference. Well, and this was the year that The Who was 
declared by the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's loudest band. Yeah. So that speaks to the power of their PA, even in a stadium like this. I'm sure it sounded pretty amazing uh, for a stadium show. Uh, let's talk about the dead in 1976. We touched on some of this in our Dick's Picks 20 episode, but as you uh, said earlier, this was uh, the dead coming out of their almost two-year hiatus. They came back in June of 1976, June 3rd, to be precise, uh, which was the night that they they debuted the songs Might As Well, Lazy Lightning, Supplication, Samson and Delilah, and The Wheel, all of which are on Dick's Picks 33. Um, This was also the return of Two Drummer Dead. Um, And shortly after they played these shows, about a month later, they started working on Terrapin Station. And we've talked about this before, that... One of the reasons that The Dead was so tight in 77 is that they rehearsed a lot during the making of Terrapin Station. So, mm-hmm. Though I will say that this, um, this undercuts that old argument a little bit. Um, I mean, mostly one of the big things, supposedly, that came out of recording Terrapin Station is that Keith Olsen, the producer, made Billy and Mickey practice. <laughs> which they didn't typically do. Uh, and so that made Billy and Mickey a, like as tight of a two-drummer operation in 77 as they ever were. Um, but they sound pretty good on this one. I was, you know, I am, as everybody knows by now, uh, typically cautious when it comes to two-drummer dead. But I thought they were, they were, they were uh, stitched together pretty well in these sets, even before Keith Olsen ran them through, you know, drummer boot camp or whatever he did. Yeah, I mean, I think that this era is, like, really great for those two guys. Mm-hmm. Although, again, I, I think back to, I think my favorite rhythm section performance from the Dick's Pick series, I got to go back to, I think that was Dick's Picks, uh, was that 22, the show from 68? Oh, yeah. I think that's, I think that's like, where they're just on fire. Like, that that's an amazing performance by those two dudes. I think we uh, said in that show that they sounded like Keith Moon. When you combine oh, yeah. them together. So just to That's bring true. it full circle. Yeah, that was Dick's Picks 22, you're right. So there's some interesting Who and Dead overlap yeah. going on, which it's funny because you don't really think of the Who and the Grateful Dead being in the same context. They seem like they're pretty different bands. Mm. You know, you got the you got the jam band from the Bay Area, and you have like the working class British band. You know, one is known for sprawling jams. The other band is known first for, you know, great uh, sort of singles in the 60s, and they become this, like, larger-than-life arena rock band in the 70s doing these concept albums. Um, But, yeah, there is some, like, shared ground here. And we were talking about, we found this, this this great post on the blog Lost Live Dead. And we've we've talked about this blog before on here. But I was talking about these shows specifically. One thing I I learned was that Pete Townsend lived in uh, Walnut Creek, California. Walnut Creek is a suburb of San Francisco. He lived there in the mid seventies. Yeah, because that's where like the like he's like a Townsend is a student of Meher Baba, the spiritual leader, and his educational center was in Walnut Creek. So that's he moved his family there. Right. And it sounds like Pete was social with like the dead camp yeah. when he was there. Yeah, I think uh there's some evidence that Pete's daughter hung out with Billy's son. 
uh and yeah, justin yeah so they were all kind of in the neighborhood and uh could have uh crossed paths certainly uh you pointed out also that there is uh a, you know five years after this there's a show there's another uh grateful dead the who double bill in germany and they actually play together uh at that show which is uh i think you know, reflects your point that there are two very different bands <laughs> that don't mm. both both very good uh, that don't necessarily uh, go together uh, because Pete comes out for a couple songs, right? Uh, not not fade away is one of them. Yeah, did he play other songs? I, I thought it was just not fade away. But. Yeah, but he's uh, a little bit lost, I think, in the Grateful Dead machine. And yeah, not- he's up there, and you can see that he wants to do Pete Townsend stuff. That, yeah, like because. It's just way slower than the whoever play. Right. Like, even though they're playing that fade away, you <laughs> yeah. can tell like he's just kind of strumming his guitar, and you could you kind of see like he does like a little bit of a windmill at one point. Mm-hmm. But you know the who is just so energetic and supercharged. Right. And this is like way mellower <laughs> than anything Townsend's done. So like I don't think he ever like takes a solo or anything. It just yeah. looks like he just plays rhythm the entire time. Yeah, it says a lot too about you know how these shows in '76 went because I think you got very different vibes uh, from the two halves of the double bill, uh, and we'll be talking about that soon. I also wanted to reference there's there's an interview that Jerry did with Musician Magazine from 1981, and he was asked in that interview, you know, do you feel any sense of kinship with any other bands in the music world today or any other artists? And you might expect Jerry to say, you know, Bob Dylan, his good friend, or, you know, maybe some other artist that would have come from, uh, you know, California in the sixties, you know, like maybe Crosby stills and Nash or something, but he said the who, and his quote was, I think the who are one of the few truly important architects of rock and roll. Pete Townsend may be one of rock and roll's authentic geniuses, and there's also the fact that they're among our few surviving contemporaries. I'm just really glad that they exist. So Jerry was a big Who fan. Yeah. It, which just brings to mind one of the most immortal Dick's Picks <laughs> moments, I think, is from Dick's Picks 27, the 1992 show, which I think was also in Oakland. Hmm. Um, and it might have been at the arena. But that they play Bob O'Reilly into Tomorrow Never Knows. I think they played Bob O'Reilly a few times, at least, in yep. the 90s. Yeah, you were right. That was at the Oakland Coliseum Arena. So maybe it was a reference to this show. We didn't, oh, uh, we didn't come up with that at the time. Um, I wanted to say about that Jerry quote, it's so interesting because he frames it as like, we have, we're survivors, right? The Who and the Dead have survived the 60s and the 70s, and now we're into the 80s. And that's where he feels some kinship with Pete. Um I kind of got that sense even in 76, and I think we're going to talk some more about this now, that 
both of them feel like both bands feel like they are going through I think what they thought was a midlife crisis as a band in the mid 70s and reacted to it in two very different ways. Now both of them I mean in some forms still exist today 45 years later. So it turns out it was not even a quarter life crisis. It was like a teenager crisis. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like really about like cuz they both started in about 65. So right. they're about a decade into their careers at this point, a little bit over a decade. They both took some time off around here, like The Dead took most of 75 off and worked on a movie and an album in secret and didn't really play any shows. Uh The Who took most of 75 and or uh, sorry, most of 74 off to work on a movie. <laughs> and then later on, I guess they recorded. They didn't really record an album while they were off, but uh, they barely played any shows in 74 because they were working on Tommy, right? Yeah, the big Ken Russell film, which I I knew that that movie was popular in the moment, but I didn't realize, like, it was like a real box office success. It, it made uh, the equivalent of, like, over $100 million, like, wow. in 2022 yeah. uh, money. And that's saying uh, something then. for that movie. What do you think of the Tommy movie? Uh, I mean, I appreciate it, just how bonkers it yeah. is, even though like a lot of the versions of the Tommy songs in there are like pretty unlistenable. Oh. You know, because <laughs> it, re- it really... Oh, do you love the Tommy version? I like, love the Tommy movie, and I love the Tommy soundtrack. Uh, I, know, I know what you're going to say, probably, but I have... A very, very, very soft spot for for both. So you listen to the soundtrack like outside of the movie? Absolutely. I love... Well, so I think what you're going to complain about is stuff like Oliver Reed. <laughs> right, <laughs> sort exactly. Of, sort of singing uh, some of the Who songs, which I kind of love in a ironic sense, I'll admit. Uh, but what I really love is 74, 75, Pete Townsend, obsessed with synthesizers, totally redoing the sound of Tommy with like the quadrophenia sound. I love that. I love like how he did, got like a second chance to to do this rock opera and he made it just like insane. <laughs> and it's so over the top. Uh, Cause the original Tommy recording, I love that there's so many different versions of Tommy. I'm a huge Tommy fan. If you can't tell the original recording, sounds a little too like genteel for the who. Uh, and then they have like the live at Leeds, you know, live version of Tommy from this time, which is great and bombastic and everything you want from the who. And then you have this third one, which is just like a weird artifact of where Pete's head was in the seventies and how he didn't really want to do the who anymore. He just kind of wanted to be like a, you know, Terry Riley synthesizer guy. Uh, so I, I don't know. Every version I think has its, its, its positive qualities that I like. One version of Tommy that I really like that I think is unheralded is that they released a, a live record version. I forget what year it was exactly, but it, it's like sometime in the last like 10 years. So it's like the old man who okay. playing, uh, Tommy live. And I have a soft spot for like old man live albums. Yeah. And there's something about like that version that I just find, uh, to be really wistful. Yeah. And also like, like Pete Townsend gives this speech toward the end where he talks about how he was abused as a kid and that like writing this album was his way of dealing with it. Yeah. And, uh, I just found it to be like, kind of like a vulnerable performance in that way. Cause he was saying in there, he's like, there's songs in here that I think are pretty painful, mm-hmm. you sure. know, like, like the songs about abuse. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how, it's like hard for him to play it for that reason. Mm-hmm. And I just thought like, wow, that's like kind of like an emotional yeah. version, 
you know, it adds like another layer to it. Yeah, I even like the Broadway musical version of of Tommy. I saw that. Wow, I look might, at you. I might go see it again. Uh, it's coming to Chicago next month. Um, I didn't know that you were like a Tommy head to Tommy this degree. is one of my favorite albums of all time. And I know that that has become progressively less cool over the years. Like now I feel like when people talk about The Who, they are more drawn to like the early 60s stuff. The Who sell out, that kind of thing. But I love Tommy. I love rock operas. And I, like I said, I love all the different versions. I love bands that, you know, constantly reinvent their material. And The Who did that with Tommy. They don't do it with a lot of other things, <laughs> but as we'll talk about. But it, uh, yeah, I think uh, Tommy was a very formative album for me. I'm not like listening to Tommy all the time, but I love watching the movie. Uh, Ken Russell is a pretty bonkers guy. Now I've seen a lot of other Ken Russell's movies and it makes a little bit more sense knowing that that's like his whole shtick, but, uh, well, he, yeah. he called Tommy his most commercial film. And like, <laughs> if you look at his other movies, it is like actually relatively tame. It's true. Yeah. The one with to, like, the, uh, iron done. maiden of, uh, syringes injecting acid into, uh, Roger Daltrey dressed as Jesus. <laughs> this is oh, most commercial movie. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm talking about the acid queen. Sequence. Oh yeah. No, well, I, mean, have you seen the- <laughs> I have seen Listomania. I've seen the devils. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think I, I. I think it's way more commercial than like some of those movies. It is. Like, it is for sure. Um, I mean, it, it's not commercial by any other like anyone else's standards, but yeah. like Ken Russell for sure. I mean, I definitely love Tommy. I, I definitely love it more as like a live concert piece than I do as an album. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, I think the original album, it's, it, it was produced by Kit Lambert, who was their manager, and he didn't really know how to work in a studio. Right, you could tell that. That's why they worked with Glenn Johns on Who's Next, and their records just sounded way more powerful for that reason in the 70s, I think. Um, The Who end up performing a suite from Tommy Mm -hmm. at these shows, and as they did throughout their tour in 75 and 76, this was actually like a really extensive touring time for The Who, where they played 79 shows around the world. Uh, in the mid-70s, basically because they were having financial problems. Probably because they didn't tour for a while, and yeah. I think The Who just ran through money like pretty quickly. And they signed uh, over all their rights to their original manager, that kind of thing. Just like the Stones, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, they weren't in, in great financial shape. And it's interesting because the tour started out ostensibly to promote the record that, that they put out in 75, which was The Who by Numbers, which I think was a fairly successful record. It, it it spawned a hit single, Squeezebox, which is, you know, this novelty song. It's not really one of the great Who songs. Yeah, nobody's favorite ever. Who song. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's also an anomaly on that record because most of the songs on that album are Pete Townsend. You know, you mentioned like having a midlife crisis. Like he really has like a breakdown on that album where he's reflecting on the rock and roll lifestyle and feeling really dissatisfied with it. Right. And, you know, there's songs on that record, like how many friends and they're all in love and dreaming from the waste. And it's a weird record to have to then launch a stadium tour behind <laughs> yeah. because they're not really like rah, rah rock songs on that record. I think it's a beautiful record. I'm a, I think, I think that's really underrated album. Um, I, I find it really moving um, but it's understandable that when they started touring behind this record, that they didn't really play much of that album. Right. It really was, this was, this was 
really like the first, I think, greatest hits tour that The Who did. And mm-hmm. as much as I love The Who, and I, I collect Who bootlegs, I love all eras of The Who, really. I mean, I mentioned that Old Man Tommy album. I have a lot of affection for the early aughts era of The Who, like when, right before Entwistle died. They were, mm-hmm. they were touring a lot. Pete was playing electric guitar again, and they sound amazing. Zach Starkey, Ringo's son, was oh, yeah. their drummer. And he's like the best drummer in The Who aside from Keith Moon. Uh, I, I like him even more than Kenny Jones, even though I think Kenny Jones is unfairly maligned. But um, their Achilles heel as a live act is that their set lists are boring. Yeah. Like they, they play the same songs over and over. It's always I can't explain going into substitute at the top of the show. Mm-hmm. And then it's like the predictable songs that you would expect to hear. And they sound great. But, you know, if you're going to compare them to the dead, that is a big difference between those two bands. Yeah, and that's, I think, what really comes across in listening to the both the dead shows and the Who shows. We should mention, I don't think we have yet, that you can find the Who shows from these dates on YouTube. You have to be a little bit fancy with how you search YouTube. I think I searched, like, the Who, Oakland, 1976. Found two playlists somebody put together of audience recordings of the Who's sets that they played after the dead on these nights. Uh, the Who played the same set both nights. That's what you're talking about. They played pretty much the same set this entire 79 show tour. It is, yeah, absolutely like, here's our career retrospective show. So that's, I think, where I, they kind of came out of their break and their midlife crisis differently, is that the Dead, I think, consciously decided to keep moving forward in some ways. Um, and the Who were kind of ready to just... Uh, you know, give people what they want. <laughs> like, here's here's the who you know and love, and here's all the hits. You know, this is also, and I remember, it's been a while since I read it, but in Pete Townsend's autobiography, one of the things that always struck me is that he never really, he never describes himself as being a member of the who. He always talks about the who as like this separate entity from him that he like that performed his songs <laughs> even though he was the guitarist in the who and i feel like this is about that time where they start to have that break right where he is just he's not having a great time in the who he didn't really like recording who by numbers uh i think there's a little bit of pete going on autopilot here uh, yeah, even though they still sound great and we're going to talk about that it still is a little bit like his heart is not totally in it anymore he's he's suffered some defeats and he's he's fallen back on his haunches a little bit that's one of the most dispiriting rock memoirs i've ever read like, <laughs> yeah, i love pete yeah. townsend and he does not come off well in no. that book and and i have to say you know people take shots at roger daltrey yeah and the daltrey does have some meathead tendencies but i will say that when you read interviews it seems like he's the one that's always pushing for them to do like a wider array of material to right. do deep cuts and Townsend doesn't want to do it because he just he doesn't want to learn new songs or he doesn't <laughs> want to learn new old songs right you know there's a certain laziness to him with this stuff even though when he comes on stage he's fucking amazing like yeah. his guitar playing is always great like even now like that's like when I've seen the who in like later periods he always is like soloing, like with a lot of inventiveness, and it's usually like the best part of the show is like what Pete Townsend's doing. But then he talks about it like it's this great burden <laughs> to make millions of dollars on the road playing his old songs. Right, and it's just such a bummer. I know. I mean, Pete, he's a fascinating guy. I'm glad that he has no filter. 
<laughs> for anything that he says. Um, it's it's a really entertaining autobiography, but you're right. It's also kind of like I mean, you. It's one of those autobiographies where you kind of despise the person <laughs> who's talking the whole way, even though yeah, you find, just, find them one of the most fascinating, despicable people you've ever uh, heard from. So yeah, it just made me not like him as much, and he yeah. was like. He's like one of my heroes. So yeah. it's not it's 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 the opposite of the Keith Richards book or the Bruce Springsteen book, you know, like <laughs> right. where you or the Bob Dylan book where you're just like, oh, this this person's so cool and they have so many awesome stories. Right. And uh, I was like, ah, okay, I'm a I still have that book, but I'm never gonna read it again <laughs> because it, it just ruins the who for me. We should also mention too uh, that the other important bit of context about the who at this time is that this was the end really of the original lineup right that keith moon was not long for the world uh after this tour and, and even during this tour it sounds like he was a mess there uh you know there was the show like where he passed that we talked about i think this was another episode we talked yeah. about the show at the cow palace in 73 where he passed out mm-hmm. uh but there were instances of him you know just being unreliable on this tour even though on stage yeah he sounds great. They were on a fire room, um, right? But they decided it would be too much of a hassle. Yeah, and it's sad because, again, I think on this tour he sounds great, but then there's the show that The Who played in 77 in mm-hmm. December for The Kids Are All Right, you know, the live performances in that movie. And if you've seen that movie, um, Keith Moon has like, deteriorated a lot. Yeah. In the year, I think it's like 14 months after the end of this tour to that show. Mm-hmm. And like his playing is not as good. It's like clearly, uh, it's it's clearly lagging. He, he just doesn't have that sort of maniac genius that I think he still had on this tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's sad. I mean, this and this these shows came toward the end of their tour. So this, if you listen to the bootleg on YouTube, you're really kind of hearing like the last stand. Yeah. Of the Who. There's only a few shows left after this one. Yeah, the 1021 was the last show of this tour. So, um, yeah, it's a bummer. They're obviously, you know, very well polished, very, very on by this point in the tour. And uh, you get Keith Moon doing, like, banter between songs, too, which is always another nice thing. It's funny, Keith Moon is kind of like the pig pen of <laughs> the Who in some ways. Like, he adds, like, a wild man aesthetic to them that uh, they never really reclaimed. No offense to Kenny Jones, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, they were much uh, more uh, gentlemanly band after that. Um, let's talk about Day on the Green a little bit. This right, uh, this was a series of of concerts that took place annually. Was it always at the stadium? I think it was. Yeah, it was designed. I think the first one. All right, somebody corrected me on this, and I'm gonna. I already forgot it. It's not. Kazar Stadium. It's Kizar Stadium in San Francisco. Or maybe I got it backwards. You can correct me again. Sorry. Uh, but the first, I think two were at that stadium. Uh, one was The Dead. One was Led Zeppelin. And Led Zeppelin one was a catastrophe. And so they never had <laughs> another one there again. So they moved it to the Oakland Coliseum, uh, which is one of these, you know, circular, multi sport, concrete buildings that they built in the 60s that have like no ambience what whatsoever but were the perfect place to pack in 60,000 teenagers <laughs> for some yeah, and, this, bells. and this started in 73 and it went until 91 which was the year that bill graham died mm-hmm. so it really is the beginning of stadium rock yeah. when these shows begin and again we're going to be referencing this this article a lot 
the Lost Live Dead article, one of the, one of the things that that article notes is that they did it during the day to encourage parents to bring their kids to the stadium. Yeah. So that they wouldn't have to worry about them going out at night. So, I mean, it seems like the shows, it seems like it would start maybe like early afternoon and go until dusk or so. Well, both of these shows start with Bob saying good morning, which I thought was maybe like Bob being a joke, like playing a joke or Bob making a joke to the fact that like three in the afternoon is morning for a rock band. But I actually think these shows must had to have started before noon because both Dead Sets and The Who's set are in daylight. (laughs) <laughs> like if you there's a little bit of footage of the who's set uh on youtube as well that you can find it sounds awful but you can turn it off and, and look at the images it, w- it was you know even at the end of the set they're still in like broad daylight so i think these shows were done by like six o'clock <laughs> at night well they i mean that out that lost live dead article because the guy who wrote that he was actually at the october 10th show he said that the dead went on in early afternoon okay so it was probably like one or one o'clock or so. Yeah. So it wasn't like so Bob was probably making a joke about it being uh, you know like that's like morning for a rock band, but I mean that is pretty early for the, the the dead to go on. And I think yeah, and that's another thing to keep in mind when you're listening to these shows is that they were like day day game dead. <laughs> like none of this none of this happened at night. This is all the dead standing on a stage without a roof. And, and just like sweltering in the sunlight playing these this music. So I think that kind of changes how, we, how it hits a little bit. And the, on the Lost Live Dead blog, he makes the point about how, you know, the Who and the Dead really had different constituencies at this point. That mm-hmm. it was this, uh, you know, there was an audience for the Who and there was an audience for the Dead. And it was, uh, I kind of think of it as like acid heads and like potheads versus like, you know, booze hounds. Right. You know, that's how I'm breaking it down. I'm sure there were other divisions going on there, but the dead went on before the who. And according to the writer of the article, he was saying that a lot of the audience was not interested in the grateful dead. Right. That, you know, that they were waiting for the who to go on. And obviously the writer, you know, he's a deadhead, So he was excited to see the, uh, see the dead up there. But he was like, you know, during like the second sets, the second set of the October 10th show, like when the show was peaking, he was just like, the audience was like not giving a shit <laughs> at all right. about it, which I wonder to what degree that affected the the, the performances that we hear on, on, on Dick's Picks 33. Yeah, they're pretty laid back shows, the dead sets. Um, the energy of the dead shows and the who shows are like night and day. <laughs> like it is, I mean, so... Bill Graham, I think, thought he was really onto something by combining these two bands. And this essay talks about this as well, that they were like, this thing is going to sell out. Like, this is just printing money to put these two bands together. It's, you know, so the dead have just come back from hiatus, too. They played some theater shows in San Francisco earlier in 76. Uh, but they're in their home turf. They were they were away for a little bit. And here they are coming back. And then you pair them with the Who, who have their own built-in audience. And they don't totally overlap. So you can get a lot of people... Uh, uh, in the stadium, and they didn't sell these shows out. And I think uh, while the bands got together very well, got along very well, I don't know that the audiences totally uh, merged <laughs> in the way that maybe they thought it might. This is a great story in uh, that Lost Live Dead article where apparently there was like a a story going on, like no one was able to capture it on film, but supposedly Jerry was seen 
dancing shirtless to the Who's set <laughs> at these shows, which, man. If it's such a great mental needed, image. Yeah. If, ever, if there ever needed to be a photo of something, I wish someone had snapped a photo of that. Right. Uh, so, so Jerry was definitely into it. Yeah. Sounds uh, jiggly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Imagining oh, uh, Jerry. <laughs> 76 Jerry, though, was like relatively fit, though. I don't yeah, think he wore he a lot was... of black shirts that made him look a little slimmer than he was, I think. <laughs> I don't know if yeah, he was ever, maybe so. uh, ever that fit. Uh, yeah, it, it seems like, yeah. Uh, I, I love that Jerry was a big Who fan. Um, I don't know. It's it's endearing to me. And they have some uh, some shared ancestry, I think, and... They even play the same song on October 10th, which we'll get to. Yeah, lots of Barry. We're getting tons of Barry from both <laughs> bands. Um, let's talk quick about Oakland Coliseum. We've already chatted a little bit about about the different iterations of the name there. It was built in 1966 for the Raiders and the Athletics, and the A's still play there. Yeah. Um, it looks like a terrible stadium to I watch know. baseball. It's like they, this cavernous space. That yeah. You, not a lot of soul, like you know, because it's like one of the older baseball stadiums. But if you compare it to like a Fenway or a, or a Wrigley Field, you know, it doesn't have the same kind of character as those places. Yeah, I think they've been playing to crowds of like you know low four figures most of this year. They're trying their best to move to Vegas or build a new stadium. It's it's amazing that they're still stuck there <laughs> fifty years later. Uh, more than that, but yeah. I mean, another good thing about the essay that you found on Lost Live Dead is uh, he does not just bash the sound of the Oakland Coliseum. He actually describes it really well as being a very sort of immersive sound. And you mentioned earlier that The Who had this incredibly loud PA and reputation this on this tour. So uh, despite it being, you know, probably not the greatest acoustics, it does sound like it was kind of like a nice place to maybe see a couple loud concerts and... I'm sure it was just a huge party. All the pictures of it have the whole field full of people. The stand's a little less populated, but the stage is out in center field. Uh, People are just like, you know, camped out for eight hours of music on the baseball diamond. Uh, You know, worst places to be. Yeah, and the audience tapes of the Who shows, especially the uh, October 9th show, are actually like pretty good odds, I thought. I mean, not, not... not great, but like yeah. for a stadium show, yeah. especially like a band like The Who, mm-hmm. who's so loud, you know. I mean, because I, 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 I have bootlegs by The Who that sound awful, you know, like where they're playing in the Silverdome, right? You know, and it's just garbled. But uh, the October 9th odd I thought was actually pretty good. Yeah, the 10th is worse, but better in some ways because there's a lot of people talking around the taper. And so you get to hear, like, some real 76 teens, like, <laughs> chatting it up oh, about yeah. the Who. Uh, it's like the Days and Confused kids <laughs> are, are nearby the mic. So I kind of enjoy it for that reason as well, just to hear, you know, some of the ambiance of what it was like there.
let's set up the scene here before we get to Dick's Picks 33. Uh, looking at what else was going on in pop culture at around the time of these shows. And I guess we'd call it mid-October, early to mid-October of 1976. The number one song in America, A Fifth of Beethoven by Walter Murphy in the Big Apple Band, which is a song I think a lot of us know from the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Yeah, but this is earlier than the movie, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is about a year before that movie and soundtrack dropped. So, other big songs from this period. Play That Funky Music by The Average White Band. Lowdown by Boss Skaggs. Yeah, who did, played Another this, Day in the Green, I saw. He headlined A Day on the Green, which I was surprised yeah. Boz was that big at any point. But yeah, Well, he's all, he's another Bay Area guy, though. Oh, sure. So, he's, yeah. probably, he's probably bigger there than he would be elsewhere. Um Disco Duck, the, <laughs> the novelty song by Rick Dees, yeah. um, and uh, Chicago's "If You Leave Me Now." So it's like a mis- mix of like disco and yacht rock, right? Which is kind of like the zone that the Dead were in. Well, yeah, going into and you know, and it, it's reflected in these shows where the Dead they play the disco version of "Dancing in the Streets." They play "Help on the Way," which you know is not too far off from yacht rocky soft rock music at the time so it's we always talk about how the dead are so detached from whatever's going on in pop culture but the who were really the band that were anomalous compared to these singles right <laughs> i mean the the who sound like dinosaurs compared to a fifth of beethoven yeah i suppose so that's a good point yeah the who never well they had the song sister disco but they never right. really uh did yeah a disco i was song. trying to think of that too eminence front is a little dancey i guess but it's not really Disco, you better you bets, kind of soft rocky. I don't know. They, I don't know. To their credit or not, they uh, they avoided that particular trap. <laughs> the number one album, Frampton Comes Alive, by Peter Frampton. Huge album from 1976. He also played at Day on the Green mm, in yeah. early '76, right when that album was really starting to peak. So this is like prime Frampton period. Other big albums, Silk Degrees by Boss Skaggs, Skaggs Strikes Again, <laughs> Linda Ronstadt's uh, Hasten Down the Wind, that's a really good record, especially for you Warren Zevon fans out there, a lot of Zevon songs on that record, Fleetwood Mac's self-titled record, Steve Miller Band's Fly Like an Eagle, so yeah, again, got some Yacht Rock, and you've got some Bedrock Classic Rock right there. Right, and Fleetwood Mac, another band, reinventing itself in the mid 70s yes and and, tremendous success right and bought themselves another 50 years of success and touring so this is really what all the bands had to do right about then i guess number one film marathon man starring dustin hoffman have we talked about marathon man before i feel like we must have on the dicks picks 20 episode given that it was just a couple weeks before this. I still I hadn't seen it then, and I still have it now, and I think, as I said then, all I know is that it has a scary dentist scene. <laughs> yep. It's a, it's, one, it's a good, like, paranoid 70s thriller. Okay. You yeah. know, if you're into, like, the, you know, Parallax View and uh, all the President's Men, like, films of that ilk, Marathon Mad, slots in there, good movie. Um, the song remains the same. The Led Zeppelin movie dropped 10 days after these shows. So those dazed and confused kids in the right. audience likely went to that movie as well. Um, other big movies from the month, Car Wash in Harlan County, USA. Um, I was a little disappointed. I mean, 76 is a great year for movies. There weren't a ton of 
classic movies that came out in October of 76, but you started to get like a lot of heavy hitters in November and December, you yeah. know, being released in time for the Oscar push, you know, movies like Network huh. and uh, I think Taxi Driver came out earlier, but I know Rocky came out in November. So again, 76, that's a great year for film. Um, number one TV shows are the top five TV shows. We have Charlie's Angels at number five. MASH at number four, the ABC Monday Night Movie at number three, two Laverne and Shirley, number one, Happy Days. Ah, not all in the family. No, I noticed that that slipped to like number 12. Oh, interesting. Took a hit, took a hit in 76. Um, I looked up like some of the movies I played on the ABC Monday Night Movie in Mm -hmm. 1976. Uh, Five Easy Pieces was one of them. Wow, yeah. That seems edgy kinda, for it, I know broadcast television. Probably like 30 million people watch that <laughs> on ABC Monday Night Movie. They're just like yeah. Jack Nicholson, right? He's, he's popular. Let's yeah, throw it exactly. on. exactly. That's Hal Ashby, right? Uh, oh, no, that's Bob Rafelson. Ah, okay, yeah. So, of the BBS company, the, the people that invented the monkeys, <laughs> they took the monkeys' m- money and they made five easy pieces. <laughs> nice. One of the great American films of all time. So, that's great. Should we get to Dick's Fix 33 finally? I think we should. Let's uh All right. Let's talk. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now at Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking... I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. We're finally here to Dick's Picks 33 from October 9th and 10th, 1976 at the Oakland Coliseum in Oakland, California. And uh, 
as we've kind of reiterated several times, I feel like already, like we didn't love this album. Right. And uh, maybe felt a little underwhelmed by it. It is funny. Okay. Let's just dive into disc one here. Yeah. Because you start off with the berry. Right. Then you go into the uh, greatest Grateful Dead song of all time <laughs> after that. Then there's Cassidy. And then you get. So it is like a comically, you know, sort of like trolling open for yeah. us. Even though I will say my sins against half step in the past aside, I've really warmed to that song. Like I'm I'm fully on board with half step yeah. at this point. And even mm-hmm. Jed. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant I've I don't know. We didn't get Jed for a while, so like I'm not as uh sick of that song as I was. Um just from talking with you a little bit, I feel like I like disc one a lot more than you did. Yeah, I really yeah, I thought that the same thing, that this was just like designed to annoy us. (laughs) And probably didn't help with us easing back into the dead after our curveball episode. But like the half step, I like half step. Uh this version is fine. Uh the Cassidy is really good, but then yeah, Jed looks like rain again. It's pretty good here, but um, you know we've talked about it a lot. They love each other. We've talked about it a lot. You like New Minglewood Blues? I could take it or leave it. I mean, it's you know my my it, it, it's touching upon my aversion to blues. I guess just I like bit. this era of that song. Yeah, I, yeah, because that's a song I associate with '77 Dead. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I like it in this era. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, I, I mean, I don't love it. I, it's not a favorite of mine or anything. It right. is interesting. Like, do, would, like, would you say that you prefer October 10th to the, to the 9th? I will get to it, but I really like the first set of the 10th. Whereas I think okay. this one is a little slow to warm up. I, if it wasn't Bill Graham, I do not think that the Grateful Dead would agree to A, open for another band, and B, go on at, you know, noon or one or whatever. Because <laughs> the Grateful Dead don't strike me as the type of band that uh, is awake in the morning very often. <laughs> right. uh, so, it, naturally, I think them standing on a hot stage at noon uh, is, is not going to go over too well until they adjust a little bit. And I think you can kind of hear that in the first half of this set, which improves quite a bit in the back half. But uh, this is, you know going through the motions a little bit for for the grateful dead well i feel like the the first and the third disc which again it's like the two first sets from both shows they do have a similar arc in that they both start off with a lot of uh like sleepwalking songs you mm-hmm. know songs that they play a million times and like you said about the half step it, it's a good version but it's not gonna blow anyone's mind or anything yeah but then at the end of each first set it gets a lot more interesting and it you do get some of that uh set list chicanery that you are a big fan of i think it is even better on the october 10th Mm -hmm. first set but i did appreciate them doing scarlet and we haven't had the first Scarlet Fire yet. That's like early 77, I think. Yeah, yeah, because Fire doesn't debut until the start of 77. So we're really getting one of the last standalone Scarlets here. Yeah, like Scarlet, Lazy Lightning, Supplication, and then you get 
the set ending sugary. Yeah. Which is that's an interesting spot for sugary because yeah. it's I, I guess that song does have some fire in it, especially with the Jerry guitar solo. Mm-hmm. Um, although again, that is another kind of mellow song for the dead. Yeah. Oddly enough, my dead and company show started with a standalone Scarlet Begonias and the first set ended with sugary. So it's like the show was, uh, was haunting ah. me <laughs> in Wrigley field. Um, yeah, this Scarlet, I think sounds really great. I mean, we talked about this with the 74 Scarlet from just a couple volumes ago that it already sounds like it has like the Scarlet Fire jam. It just wraps up instead of going into a second song. Uh, and this is another version that jumped out at me as like, I didn't realize Scarlet got this fully fleshed out before they started doing the suite every time. Um, I like Lazy Lightning Supplication. I mean, it's again, like you talked about, uh, the dead did introduce some new music here. Uh, and even the Blues for Allah stuff, you know, hasn't been played on the road that much. Uh, so there's enough new material in these shows to keep it a little fresh. Um, yeah, and uh, the the other thing that really struck me about this first set, and really both shows in their entirety, is that uh, Donna sounds great. Like, we you have talked about how Donna did not like the wall of sound, uh, couldn't hear herself. Uh, she sounds really good in 77, but here's like a little bit earlier and... She is sounding really, really good on that Cassidy, which I liked quite a bit. Uh, and also the outro to Looks Like Rain. This is a, a, a Steve point that has come up repeatedly, mm. that when you have Donna sort of balancing out Bob at the end of Looks Like Rain, he doesn't get too wacky on his rain hatred. Uh, but Donna here is the nice, sweet compliment to him. And so it's a, it's yeah. this really nice duet. There's a lot of Bob-Donna... Not harmonizing necessarily, but vocal interplay that that works really well in this era. It gives it a more romantic feel, like when you've got Donna on there. And mm-hmm. It's like the romantic comedy section of, of the Grateful Dead set, and I always appreciate that about uh, that song. But, uh, yeah, you know, there's not a ton of improvisation going on in either one of these shows. It, it really does come down to some unexpected uh, segues into songs Yeah, that you, that you don't hear a ton of. Right. Uh, outside of this era really like as we go into the second disc this is probably my favorite disc of the album uh and it really is because of like the help on the way section like (laughs) where you have help on the way goes in the slipknot then there's like a drums then they do samson and delilah then they go back to slipknot and then they do franklin's tower so that's like the bulk of the second disc and man i've really 
realize that Help Slip Frank is, um, I don't want to overstate this, but it, it has become like one of my favorite showcases mm-hmm. for the, for, you know, like if you want to group that with, with Scarlet Fire or uh, uh, China Rider, you know, Help Slip Frank, I think is like a little sort of like the dark horse. Yeah. All of those, but. I don't know. I've really come to love Helps Up Frank, and I really love how it came across on this show. So, yeah, I think that's probably my favorite part of uh, Dick's Picks 33. Yeah, it is great. And it's, again, that's all newish material that they're filling up their second set with. So they're not just playing the hits. And when they do play the hit uh, by opening with St. Stephen, it's the sort of, you know, late 70s, slower rewrite version of St. Stephen, which I think we've both come out as not being huge fans of, but at least it's like they're revisiting the old hits and trying to reinvent them for a new era of the dead instead of just playing them. And yes, I'm firing shots (laughs) at the other man on the bill a little bit here. (laughs) It sounds even slower here, you know, it's like even... Well, I... Because they're in the sun and they're like, you know, sweating their asses off. I wrote that this is like a very foreshadowing set for like the dead and company era and of course i've had dead and company on my mind while i'm listening to the sticks picks but uh the slow saint stephen i realized is sort of like the dead dead and companying themselves when they were still the dead like let's take one of our like fieriest angriest fastest most urgent songs and play it at half speed and just let it breathe and some people really like that uh even the not fade away in between the two saint stephen in the in the sandwich uh, sounds like a very mellow not fade away. Like the really great not fade aways are just like, you know, a train barreling down a hill. And this one just is like 12 minutes of them, like just kind of mellowing out, just kind of playing. It really, <laughs> it gives you kind of opening set vibes. Like we're just here to warm up the crowd. We're going to play not fade away for 12 minutes and people are going to dance and get loose for the who. Then it gets into this help slip prank segment, which is way more intense. In fact, both halves of the slipknot are awesome. Like so good, yeah. Uh, it's really good. It's it is interesting though. Again, that like the longest song on the first two discs is like you know just under thirteen minutes. Yeah, and that's the Franklin's Tower. You've got Scarlet Begonias that goes over twelve, but you know they're they're playing like relatively succinct versions of these songs. You know by Dead standards, it does make me think again of that Lost Live Dead blog post where he talked about how they were not really playing for their audience right at these shows that you had a lot of who fans who did not care about the dead just waiting for them to get off the stage yeah and uh you know that must have affected these performances because again like when you listen to it the recording quality is so good but it just i don't know there's not that i feel like on every dicks picks there's like one moment at least where you're like okay we're we're going to the stars here. Like we got shot into the, you know, the outer reaches here. And I don't feel like that ever comes <laughs> on Dick's Picks 33. Yeah. Well, Bob even makes a joke before the second set where he says, mean old Uncle Bill tells us we only have an hour to play. <laughs> right. And then he says, so we're not going to start playing for a while. Or Once we start, we only have an hour. So we're not going to start playing for a while as they're like noodling on Beautiful Dreamer <laughs> while they tune up. <laughs> um, they actually end up playing for 70 minutes. So in very Grateful Dead style, they go over their curfew as opening act or whatever. But I mean, they do sound rushed. Like the drums on both shows, I think it's three minutes on the ninth and 
even less on the 10th. I think there's a, yeah, two Mm. minutes and 10 second drums on the second one. So, I mean, is that them respecting the clock? Is that them reading the room and seeing a bunch of like drunk, (laughs) angry who fans like glaring at them? Um, I do think, you know, not so much this set. I do think the second night is a little more confrontational and how weird it gets. Uh, towards the end i mean it's moving in and out of a lot of songs so you don't spend a lot of time in one song you don't have you know a 28 minute the other one or something that's really thrown down the gauntlet uh but i do think there is some interesting space on the first night in slipknot where it sounds you know it sounds like space or it sounds like dark star it's just you know locked within especially when it goes back into that slipknot reprise out of samson and delilah there's a few minutes where it just feels like free-floating music in a really nice way. Um, and sort of like the jazzy 73, 74 dead, but with the you know sort of refinement of 76, 77 dead. And I find that a little exciting as like a transitional period for the dead. But like you said, you're, everything else is enjoyable, but that's like the only moment that really approaches you know something transcendent in this show. talked about this before with with 1977 dead is that one of the strengths of that era was just how muscular the dead were then mm-hmm. and like how they did have that stadium rock sort of muscle to them they could sound really big and aggressive and and powerful and i just don't really get that yeah from these shows and again because of the mellowness because you know they're playing so early in the day say man okay getting to disc three october 10th sure starts off with might as well yeah which is cool i love it i think is it is that a dick's picks debut Ooh, that's a good question i meant to look that up um, i'm i'm pretty sure it is because uh i mean i i go back and forth on might as well where i like it a lot but i also wonder if i like it a lot because you only hear it in like a very narrow band of the dead's time. It is a debut at this volume and we get it again in the next volume. So we get to back to back might as well. But especially with the way this is, this volume is sequenced, 
where the first night ends with One More Saturday Night in U.S. Blues. Two songs that are fine, but I am a little tired of. Like, Might As Well is kind of in that same zone, but haven't heard nearly as much, so I really appreciated that as an opener here. I'm also like, oh, they played Might As Well as the opener. That means that they're not going to play The Promised Land again. Uh, but sure enough, <laughs> seven <wrong>. songs later, <laughs> Bob gets well, it in there. <laughs> and and I, I got to say, like on this disc, this is where I was feeling some Dick's Picks fatigue, because... We're we're getting songs that like I honestly as like it was hard for me to pull the trigger on the play button on some of these songs. <laughs> you get you got Mama Tried, into Ramble on Rose, then you get Cassidy again, which is a song I like, but you know, we've we just had that. Deal. You know, I like Deal. It is a weirdly play I always expect Deal to be at the end of the first set. Yeah. I feel like it it's a little wasted in this point. Then you get El Paso. And then there's Loser, which is a song I love, but I'm a little sick of, I think. We get a lot of losers. We disagreed on this, because I like this Loser. Uh, you like the pre-hiatus Losers better, but I thought this one was really nice. I like the slower pace of uh, Loser after the break. Um, it didn't have that sort of wonky drums that we often complain about uh, with the early 70s versions. So maybe it's just Dick's Picks has picked some weird Losers. Uh, well, but, I, I mean, I'll say I think my favorite loser of all time is the is from Cornell. Yeah. Okay. I, well, I love yeah. I, I love that loser, but generally speaking, like on the Dick's picks, I think like the seventy two, like a seventy two loser is usually the strong because I think you said in our outline that you thought this was the best Dick's picks loser. I was trying to think of a better one, yeah, and I couldn't. So. Just on the Dick's Picks. Not like it's my favorite loser of all time or anything, but I feel like every time we get to loser on a Dick's Picks, I'm like, oh, it's a loser. I love this song. And then it leaves me wanting something. Uh, but I, I like this pace. Like the, both Loser and Friend of the Devil, which are before and after our buddy The Promised Land, uh, are the slower versions that they started playing. Friend of the Devil, of course, is way slower. Um, but they're not as slow <laughs> as they would become in the eighties and nineties. And like this friend of the devil was like, like right in my sweet spot for like, this is the slow version, the slow arrangement of friend of the devil, but is not like creaky yet. Uh, and I really liked it. And like probably my favorite Keith moment on this set, I think is Keith getting a nice featured solo in friend of the devil. So I don't know. I felt like maybe it's just that I thought this first set, the, the the first set on the first night felt like generic Grateful Dead first set. This one felt a little bit more in tune with the fact that this is the dead playing at like lunchtime. <laughs> like, you know, Bob playing his country covers, you know, uh, you know, a couple nice, pretty Jerry ballads. Like, it just seems like the kind of nice, like, you know, early afternoon Grateful Dead show. Whereas the other one felt like it was clashing a little bit with the environment, maybe. I mean, I'll just say I think it's definitely more chaotic. It's like all over the place, and some <laughs> of the organization like it doesn't flow that well. I don't think. I mean, you get like Promised Land in the eighth slot, yeah, and then and then you go into the Friend of the Devil. I I don't know. I just feel like there's not a lot of momentum that builds uh, on this set for me until the end. Yeah, I mean, the Friend of the Devil. I will say I I thought it was a little too pokey for okay. me. I I did like the Keith solo. I've always you know. Let Keith play, turn Keith up. You know, if we have like t shirts, <laughs> let Trey sing, turn Keith up. I mean, that would be my t shirt for Dick's Picks. Um, but I thought it was a little too pokey for me. I mean, really, like I said before, it comes alive at the end. 
Because you get a really bizarre sandwich. <laughs> yeah. Which I, apparently they did. One other know, time. In, yeah. Did they do like, but did they do like Dancing in the Street into Wharf Rat? Like, yeah, I noticed. Other times in 76? In 76, for some reason, these songs were paired together a lot. And again, it's so maybe, weird. maybe it's that they're in the same key or something like that. It's not, you know, topic matter wise, not exactly the two songs you would put together unless <laughs> the main character of Wharf Rat was doing too much dancing in the streets. And that's why he's. <laughs> <laughs> an alcoholic <laughs> living down by the wharf. Uh, but uh, it is really bizarre. You're right. It's especially bizarre to come out of Wharf Rat back into Dancing in the Streets, which they only did at this show. And then I think the next uh, week, 1014, they also did Dancing, Wharf Rat Dancing. Uh, I, this is what I wanted from a 76 show, though, right? It's like the dead thinking outside the box. <laughs> like, let's do something we've never done before. Uh, and they, they deliver it here. And actually, like, the jam, the wind down from disco dancing into Wharf Rat. I mean, like, on paper, you can't even imagine how those two songs glue together. But I, it was really interesting improvisation in that section, including some Sly Jerry that I didn't even mind. Like, it was uh, some nice atmospheric... Jerry Slide, uh, bringing it down to the, the ballad speed. like something you would do to be intentionally perverse to put these <laughs> songs together because like you said it just you know tonally or thematically they seem diametrically opposed right you've got this upbeat disco fi dancing in the street get people dancing in their seats and then you just got this dreamy downer <laughs> ballad and but like you said, it works. Like I, I really dug it. I dug the perversity of it. I think that this, that the segue into Warfret and the segue out, were both like carried off like well. Yeah. And I think, you know, on an album that otherwise seems a little boring, quite frankly, at times, like if you're not gonna have a transcendent moment, at least have some weird moments. Yeah. You know, and this is like one of the weirder moments that actually I think they do pull it off. Right. Uh, so I appreciate it, you know, in, in that respect. I, I appreciated that you called it the dancing rat in our notes. <laughs> <laughs> it's the dancing rat. Exactly. <laughs> it's the dancing rat. So yeah, lots of praise for the dancing rat. Uh, let's get to the second set of October 10th. And you were talking earlier about how you felt like 
Did you feel like they were needling the the Who audience with this set? Because they you know, they do have a drum space. Right. It does get a little more avant-garde. This is probably the closest that they get to really kind of getting into you know weirdness. Right. On this album, we were uh, debating, you know, whether the Scarlet Fire bookends at my Denko show counted as one long Scarlet Fire. I think this one definitely counts as one long playing in the band because right. they do playing into drums, into the wheel, into what's labeled as space, which you know, not really space at this time yet, but the, it gets into a pretty weird jam post wheel, which you could almost argue is more them returning to the play-in jam, even though they don't sing any of the play-in words. Uh, sort of like a interstitial play-in there, which goes into the other one. Then you get Stella Blue for sort of your second big jury ballad of the afternoon. Back into playing in the band. Into Sugar Magnolia for a big rave-up finale. So, you know, put it all together, that's, you know, a solid 45 minutes or so playing in the band. All continuous music. Uh, and, you know, nothing like what you're going to hear in an hour when the who hit the stage. Like, especially that space after the wheel and the return to playing in the band after Stella Blue is just real vibey, uh, Grateful Dead jazz sort of last remnants of the 73, 74 dead sound still sticking around. It is funny to imagine them playing that, though, at like, you know, let's say Four. it was like three o'clock, <laughs> yeah, three thirty o'clock. You know, three thirty, and they're doing space, or they're going into Stella Blue, right? And which, there's n- there's no lights, like there's nothing. <laughs> it's there's just no a bunch lights. Of, it's dudes standing on a stage in center field of a baseball stadium, and they're playing this like incredibly deep psychedelic music. Was that like the last time that like drums and space? took place during the daytime <laughs> like, i can't imagine <laughs> that happening question. in the light of day it yeah. doesn't make any sense or stella blue right you hear that and like this you know slow emotional ballad it just seems like that's got to be under the moonlight mm-hmm. to work exactly yeah it really changes everything when you know these shows happen in the afternoon it just is very discordant with the music that they're playing it just i I don't think it works nearly as well or i mean again like you know we were talking about the logic of packaging these bands together and yeah you 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 look at it on paper and you're like oh yeah the who and the grateful dead are like two of the greatest bands of all time like why wouldn't you want to see them together but like they're both multi-course meals right like you don't want two multi-course meals back to back. You want an appetizer and then you want the meal. Yeah. So it just seems like too much food. And this is like eating, you know, like uh, like a turkey dinner uh, at yeah, like in the middle of the afternoon. It's like no, I need to you need to gear up to this. You know, give me a salad. Right. And then I'll have the turkey dinner. Well, this was my question. I was thinking about this, like. You know, so the Who are more commercially successful at this point in 76 and to this day, potentially, in terms of like album sales than the Grateful Dead. So it seems like almost a no-brainer that the Who would be the headliner. But just in terms of show flow, would you maybe have put the Dead after the Who at these shows if you were Bill Graham? Well, I wouldn't want to go on after the Who. Because <laughs> again, it, it, they're like a meal too. Yeah, yeah. Um I was a little surprised that the dead didn't headline just because it's in the Bay Area. True, and I true. thought in the Bay Area you would give them headliner status. It, it is interesting, you know, we mentioned that show in Germany from 1981. Yeah. And the Who opened for the dead at that show. Right. 
So, which is interesting because, like, in Germany, are the dead bigger than the who? Like, I don't uh, that That seems like a stretch to me. Yeah. That that would be the case, but... The only thing I would um, argue is that the who... I mean, if this show was afternoon going into nighttime, I could see the who being really good as, like, a late afternoon band. And then you get the dead for, like, sort of... Just, some, like, a more of a nighttime energy. I guess. Yeah. I know it's like going from like a super high energy show to something a little more low key, which is maybe opposite of what you want at a big stadium show. But the who I think you can enjoy at four in the afternoon, you know, windmilling and playing Bob O'Reilly. Uh, whereas something like this play in suite, you want to happen like at, you know, 1130 at night. <laughs> so maybe it makes a little more sense. It's just odd again, because neither band, you don't ever associate the dead or the who is being like an opening act. Yeah. So like, like both bands I'd rather watch at night yeah. than during the day. What if you put the who set between the two dead sets? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's too much food. I think that would be too, way too jarring. Yeah. Well, yeah. Are we going to talk, should we talk about the who? Cause we, we listen to these shows. Let's run it down. Yeah. Cause I think it's a pretty interesting set list. I mean, we're not going to go song by song here. No, but it, it, I mean, obviously the big difference is the energy level. Yes. Um, right from the go. <laughs> and, you know, even when the Dead's playing at night, they're mellower than, than The Who. <laughs> but this is like an especially mellow, you know, th- these are two, I think, especially mellow concerts. The Who don't seem like they're slowed down by the daylight. Like, they, they're just charging straight ahead. And Yeah. You know, we were talking earlier about how, in a way, you know, this is like The Who's last stand. You know, Keith Moon is going to, he dies like almost exactly two years after these shows. He died on my birthday hmm. or my first birthday, September 7th, 1970. So you're not Keith Moon reincarnate. No, I was, I was a one-year-old baby. And I also <laughs> didn't kill Keith Moon. I was, I was one year old. Um, but I think they sound spectacular. Yeah. Like uh, in these shows. And, and I'll just say, all due respect to the dead. I think the Who clearly won these two it's shows. The battle I of the bands. Were, yeah, yeah. I think they were clearly superior. You know, a year later, the Dead would have crushed the Who. You know, like when they were in their '77 prime, and mm-hmm. the Who were falling apart by '77. Um, you know, the, they would have crushed the Who. But you know, the Who. I mean, they were. This is like one of their most extensive touring periods. Um, you know, really, I think since like that Live at Leeds era, right like when they were playing Tommy, you know, constantly. For about two years so yeah they were just like shit hot right by this point yeah i think i agree with you i think it's also a great example of sort of music critical apples and oranges here like i, I just it, it's really tough to judge these two bands by the same criteria because <laughs> like oh yeah absolutely like the who uh, as we mentioned earlier played the exact same set list both nights except they did an encore the second night uh, which added some some different songs. Um, so, you know, me being on a dead podcast with that frame of mind on, I look at that and I go, oh, that's so predictable. Like everything, see, the set list is so greatest hits focused. It's just like, uh, this is just a band, you know, go, hit, hitting the numbers, like hitting their dance steps. They're not like, you know, this immersive, you know, improvisational exploratory experience that the Grateful Dead give you. But if you flip it back around, I mean, you know, the the cliche of the greatest hits set, I don't think was a thing yet. 
So this is kind of like a dream set list if you're coming to see The Who in 1976. If you saw them in 1974, they played all of Quadrophenia, which I love Quadrophenia, but it sounds like it never totally translated well as a live experience. I think it's like, I mean, I've got a bootleg from Phil, because they toured in 73, I think, mainly mm-hmm. on Quadrophenia, and I've got a show from Philadelphia where they sound awesome. I mean, the, yeah. the, the, the thing I think that's a, that was a, maybe a knock at that time is that, and I don't know if Daltrey was instructed to do this or if he just felt like he had to do it, but like he talks a lot between the songs about like what the story is. Mm, yeah. And it doesn't seem necessary. It's like <laughs> a little bit of like, uh, you know, it, it kind of kills the momentum a little bit. I think there was also songs too that were just too difficult to play. Right. And they were playing to backing tracks, right? Like the a lot of stuff was pre-recorded. I think I think they gradually took the songs out that needed backing tracks, and they stuck with the more straightforward, okay. like Five Fifteen and yeah. uh, Punk Meets the Godfather, and yeah. you know, songs like that that you could just play as a rock band, right? Unlike the, like the title track, which is much more ornate and layered. I, you know, I think that was stuff they that they dropped, right? But I, so they, I guess what I'm just saying is they came off sort of a confrontational tour where they're like a big chunk of our set is going to be our new album. Uh, to like a you know, all killer no filler <laughs> career retrospective set in 1976. So like if you were a Who fan, this is kind of your your dream set list, right? In a lot of I ways. Mean, like, like in defense of the Who, I would say that I mean they were leaving some hits on the table. They don't really play that much from Who's Next other than Bob O'Reilly. I think that's the only. Well, my oh, wife and, is uh, on there. Oh, that's true. They play three songs, I guess. Yeah, There's yeah, yeah. Behind Blue Eyes. Behind Blue Eyes. Yeah. Um, Nothing from Quadrophenia, although like earlier in the tour they they were doing Drowned, mm-hmm. and I wish they would have played oh, Drowned me too. at these yeah. shows because that's an amazing song. Um, but in defense of them doing Tommy, I would say that like they didn't do Tommy really for about five years, right? So there was like this generation of like eighteen to twenty one year olds who probably saw the Woodstock movie, right? But they never got to see, uh, you know, the Who played Tommy before, and it's not the whole Tommy; it's just like a. a like a shortened version of it, um, which it's funny too because they don't just play the hits from Tommy; they they do play like fiddle about. <laughs> well, that's funny. yeah, I love which, the, such a weird selection of songs from Tommy to play. Well, but. I think I think that the reason they did that is just me speculating is that it it's a condensed version of the story. Yeah, so it works there, and also Entwistle wrote fiddle about. I think yeah, he did. Yeah, and then and then Keith Moon. They have him sing Tommy's Holiday Camp. Right. So, like, you, you get uh, Entwistle Spotlight and you get a uh, Keith Moon Spotlight. <laughs> like, I know, like, on the uh, yeah, like on the Toronto show that I really love from December of 75, like, they do Boris the Spider. Okay, yeah. And they didn't, they didn't do that, like, at this show. They do play, like, a couple Who by Number songs, like, Dreaming from, like, from the Waste. Mm-hmm. I'm sure no one was begging to hear that song, even though <laughs> I like that song. Yeah. Um, but... As far as like the you know improvisational thing, I mean my favorite sort of band interplay from this whole stand, if you look at the Who and the Grateful Dead, is <laughs> like the playing on My Wife. Yeah. Oh yeah. The My Wife is so good. Like it actually it just rips. the one that has like kind of an unexpected jam tacked on to the end of it. Because like Magic Bus is very long, but if you've listened to any Who show ever, Magic Bus always has like the big jam out ending at the end. Um, right. Yeah, no, my wife, I think, was maybe my favorite thing in this whole set. 
And this version is longer than other versions I've heard from this tour. I think the version here is about eight minutes. Mm. And uh, from earlier in the tour, they're like around five minutes. So it just seems like they stretched that out. It, it just seems like, because it's not his song maybe, Townsend just felt totally emboldened to just solo his ass off. Yeah. I'm my wife. some like jamming here and there i mean we talked about this that the, the way the who jams is of course way different from the way the dead jams but there's the my wife sort of extended part there's magic bus they do the my generation into join together into my generation blues which has a lot of you know seemingly freeform jamming that i think is pretty similar in terms of its shape from night to night um the interesting thing I find is that, like, I, I don't really think of Pete as, like, a guitar soloist. Like, when he jams, it's almost like he's, he's... There's a lot more rhythm, I feel like, to his to these jams than, like, classic guitar solos. Like, he's very much... He's almost more of a Bob than a Jerry in a lot of ways. Like, I think a lot of interesting things that Pete does are shared with Bob in terms of, like, interesting chording, interesting rhythms played on the guitar... Uh, so I kind of enjoyed hearing, you know, this is like kind of a version of like Bob as a front man. <laughs> there's not really a Jerry in the who, uh, there's kind of, uh, a, a different dynamic at play, of course. Yeah. There's no one as gentle as Jerry mm -hmm. in, in the who they're all pretty aggressive. It is interesting to compare like Entwistle to, uh, Phil Lesh yeah. because they're both very active bass players who yeah. make their presence felt. Um, and in The Who, he is almost like another guitar player. Right. Uh, and, and you mentioned Pete's style. And, yeah, it is very rhythmic. And sometimes, and I think he's talked about this, that, like, when Entwistle was in the band, like, he had to give him space because the bass guitar is so loud. Sometimes the bass is, like, the lead guitarist almost. <laughs> right, yeah. And he has to, and, like, when I saw The Who for the first time in 2002... It was right after Entwistle died, and um, Pino Palladino was playing bass. Right from you know, shout out to our John Mayer episode, and um, Townsend was soloing like a ton that show <laughs> yeah. because Palladino was way less loud than uh, Entwistle was. So like Townsend had to like pick up the slack mm -hmm. in in the music for that reason, um, but. I, I forget who who said this. Someone once compared Townsend style to like, uh, like a like flamingo guitar, like flamingo mm. music, where it's like lots of strumming. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think that's like a really good comparison. Mm -hmm. And 
he's he is kind of underrated as a guitar player though. Like whenever I listen to the Who, I'm 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 always just like just loving Townsend yeah. as a guitar player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I like that. Uh, what I like about him is that he's both. He can do both the rhythm guitar, really interesting rhythm guitar, and leads. So he, he's he's the full package, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's a great set. I, one weird sort of daytime quirk with the Who is that uh, I believe this is when Won't Get Fooled Again had the big laser light show, right? The sort of classic Who footage of like the lights flashing around. Oh, right. The breakdown. So it's kind of like hilarious that they didn't have that for the very long synthesizer part. <laughs> and instead, they're just like standing on stage in daylight. I know. Because <laughs> that, that was a back. I think that was a backing track too, right? They didn't have somebody actually playing the synthesizer no. part. No. I so, mean, the, the Who in this era never played with other musicians. It was only after Keith Moon died that okay. they added a keyboardist. Right, right. Um, but they, they, they were just like a straight up like power trio with a singer. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, the other funny set list quirk, I mentioned the second night had an encore. The first night did not. They just played Won't, Won't Get Fooled Again and got out of there. Uh, that was sec- John Whistle's birthday too, by the oh, way. Yeah, he had, mentioned that. He had, he had a birthday plans to get to. Birthday reservation. Yeah, exactly. Um, they sang happy birthday. They, that's like part of the banter of, yeah. of that episode, of, of that uh, show. And uh, yeah, they always have funny banter. Yeah, they all like, they love introducing each other. (laughs) They do that at both shows where they're like, and here's a song by Pete Townsend with the harmonies of John Entwistle. (laughs) Like, they do that to each other all the time. Good good in-joke by the band. Um, But yeah, the second night encore, Pete comes out, he thanks uh, Bill Graham, he thanks the dead and their fans, and then they play Shake It All Over, classic Who cover. But they also play two songs that the dead cover. Uh, They play Spoonful which I think they often stuck with Shaking All Over. But then they play Johnny Be Good. Uh, you know, two hours ago, the Dead's encore was Johnny Be Good. So we got our probably our most unorthodox Triple Berry of all time here, uh, with <laughs> the right. Dead playing Promised Land and Johnny Be Good, and then the Who playing Johnny Be Good. Uh, I don't know if you got a chance to... I don't, think, I don't know if you listened all the way to the end of the 10th, uh, the Who set on the 10th, but... I don't think they'd ever played Johnny Be Good before <laughs> this night. I don't think they ever played it again. I couldn't find any reference to them ever playing Johnny Be Good other than this show. Uh, I don't think they know how to play it. I think Keith sings it. So I really wonder if this was like them, not goofing on the dead, but like a little bit of a, you know, elbow in the ribs uh, to the to the Grateful Dead. Yeah, it's probably just like a friendly gesture. Exactly. Like we're all, yeah. and, and they knew again... It wouldn't be recognized in in time, but uh, you know, forty five some years later, the the stealth triple berry would be <laughs> acknowledged, and they would be justified in playing. People at the time probably didn't really understand the significance of this, but that's right. why this show exists. Yeah, to acknowledge, yes, as you said, the most unorthodox triple berry <laughs> in Grateful Dead history. Um, we got Dick's Picks thirty four. Coming up in our next episode, as you said, this is a 77 show. Yeah. Uh, November 5th, 77 in Rochester, New York. And then there's like a little bit of filler from a few days prior in Toronto. So we're going from, I guess, the fall of 76 to the fall of 77. Yeah. Not a big jump. Not a big jump at all. We'll see, I guess, like how polished the dead are one year later after these uh, Day on the Green shows. So we're staying in our 70s zone in spite of my complaints, but it's okay. <laughs> I can't complain too much about going to listen to a 77 Grateful Dead Dick's Picks. So 
be fun to get into that. Yeah, we'll see what they learn from the Who. <laughs> exactly. It's too bad they weren't already doing Bob O'Reilly in the seventies. <laughs> yeah, you know. I mean, but, like, uh, yeah. If they, yeah, the second night they should have uh, whipped up their own cover of Bob O'Reilly just to to get back at them. Yeah. No, it's uh, amazing. Yeah. Uh, I think you know this is an interesting episode. Hopefully, people are okay with us talking about the Who as much as we talked about the Dead. But uh, yeah. Hey, man. Check it out. If you can't, if you can't appreciate some Who talk, you're listening to the wrong show. Even though this is a Grateful Dead show, <laughs> right? It was fun. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. We'll be back with Dick's Picks 34 in a few weeks. See you then. Thirty Six from the Bald is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden, and Rob Mitchum and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from No Effects, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road.